0: Welcome to Very Amusing, your one-stop shop for the stories, secrets, and shenanigans of a popcorn-fueled theme park journalist. I'm Carly Wiesel, and I feel like at this point you can tell if I am recording this episode in our back house. We have a converted garage, which is... it serves a lot of purposes. It's a bathroom, a spare bedroom, a spare office, a laundry room, and a gym, but don't imagine a tiny house. It is all of that essentially in one tiny, tiny room. Or I'm recording in the house where if I yell too loud, Pearl can hear me and then comes in and is like, mom, what are you doing? Even though she doesn't talk yet, but that's the energy her eyes are giving me. Clearly I'm recording in the back house today because I can be as loud as I want and it's kind of fun to be as loud as you want. It's nice. It's nice to just yell into a mic and to do my favorite thing. Speaking of mic, I know last week I said I got a new mic. I was going to set it up. I did not set it up in time because it actually has a lot of technical aspects. It's a really good mic. Jeff recommended it. Jeff who does the podcast, as you know, anyone who listens all the way through. And I have to go and set it up with Jeff. And there was an issue with this big fancy attachment I got that it won't attach to my desk. Long story short, I have the mic. It'll be ready for next week. But we are on the OG mic this week still. Still, it should it should sound good though. But either way, prepare for a you know, like a red carpet style glow up when I finally debut the new mic. Clearly it is a weird, a, a weird, a weird. <laughs> it is award season in LA, and I feel like I have it on the brain. Something I didn't know before I moved to LA, eight, nine years ago from New York, is that award season is a full season here. Like you will go and get a coffee, and if you get a hot drink, the sleeve that they put on the coffee, you know, that cardboard sleeve, it will be promoting for your consideration projects. Like, they're trying to target voters for all the awards all over town, so the billboards are for your consideration for movies. Um, all of the, like, not, like, oh, what do you call it? the New York style, like, slap a poster on a construction wall type of thing. Those are all, like, Netflix movies. Vote for this, for your consideration that. But especially getting a coffee is so funny because you, I, it's something I've never experienced not to be like, back in Illinois, that would never happen. But it would never happen, and it's so LA and it is, it's just, it's fun. I don't know. It's fun being like where the action is and where all the stuff is happening. It's why I like being near the studio lots, going to Burbank, stuff like that, standing around because it, it's where things are created. It's just very, it's very exciting for someone who is not in the industry to be adjacent to it and to see it all happen. In other news, Magic Key Passes for Disneyland are out by the time you're listening to this. Personally, I am still, I'm still making my choice. I'm hemming and hawing on which one I'm going to get, if any, though I'm probably going to get one. The thing is, I love that SoCal resident ticket that they have. It's a three-day ticket for SoCal residents, hence the name, and I really like it. I think the price is fantastic. I bought a couple of them, but I don't really see myself going on a weekend, so I don't need the higher tier Magic Key, because if I wanna go on a weekend, I'll just buy a single ticket. But then again, I wanna park hop, and if I get a Magic Key instead of the SoCal ticket, it's built into the price, and you have to pay extra for the SoCal ticket. Either way, I can't decide. I will have to decide by the time you listen, but this is the big choice of my life, and- I know a lot of you are going through it too. So I hope your purchase went okay and you were able to suss out what you would like. And speaking of Disneyland, I posted on Instagram last week um, asking what type of guides, what type of episodes people wanted to hear this year. And I got so many that were Disney World people going to Disneyland, needing Disneyland advice for Disney World experts. That will be coming on both social media and on the podcast. It is coming, I promise. It is just one of the many episodes we have planned. So stay tuned for that. I don't want this intro to end up being its own tiny podcast, but uh, this weekend we saw Luna Luna, which I'm going to get into in this week's episode, and it really made me think... basically i've been thinking a lot lately about how i cannot believe that there are so many parents in the world out there just juggling everything being there at work being there for their kids managing to feed and hydrate and clothe themselves and other people every single day i had no idea people were walking around this tired all the time until i became one of them i had no clue that this whole ecosystem existed and granted i i am very new at having a kid. It's been less than a year, but I'm still wrapping my head around the fact that weekends just don't exist anymore. I brought Pearl to the exhibit that we're going to talk about, but I forgot that weekends, you know, it was like a fun family outing, but there's still so much feeding and napping and and feeding and bottles and uh, milk and all, all this stuff that still happens on a weekend that when you layer in other things to do, I get why parents are stressed when they leave the house? I just can't get my head around the fact that weekends really don't exist anymore. You still have a Saturday and Sunday. You have two days off of work if you work, you know, a job with Monday through Friday hours. Yet you're you're never you're not you you don't you don't have a break. It's a weekend in name, but there's there's no break. There's just no break. It's one of those things when, when I was on the outside, I didn't fully grasp it. So now that I'm on the inside of having kids. None of y'all have had breaks for years? I cannot believe this. So I just want to give it up to all the parents who are listening that you are doing a great job, that you have been doing this for this long, and you're still every weekend. You're there. You're doing it all. You're probably going to soccer games. You're going to museums. You're going on adventures. You're traveling. It's a lot. And it all kind of compounds on itself, which I never expected. So I am blown away and amazed and in awe of all the parents of the world. So if you're a parent and you're listening to this, you're doing fantastic. And I am completely in awe of you. I will turn it over to the actual episode, but stay tuned after these words from our sponsors because we are talking about something very, very cool that I cannot wait to discuss with you. Okay, bye. Today, we are talking all about Luna Luna Forgotten Fantasy. Now, if you've started to see this pop up on TikTok or Twitter, seeing seen theme park people discussing it offhand, and are like, what is this exhibit everyone is talking about? Well, we are going to give you the Full scope of it this week. Luna Luna is the world's first art amusement park. It existed for a short period of time in the 80s, and this bottom up recreation of attractions created by world famous artists has now been resurrected and is on display for viewing in downtown LA. It's stunning. Seeing it in person is awe inspiring. But it's perhaps the only amusement park in the world where you can buy a ticket stand beside a carousel or Ferris wheel, and not be able to ride a thing. So if you're wondering why we're discussing an art exhibit that's only in L.A., well, there is a very, very good reason. First of all, Luna Luna is not going away. They are planning to tour globally, so you will likely encounter this on your next trip to a major city or possibly in your hometown in the coming years. Second of all, while this does dip a toe into the immersive entertainment sphere, This is, do not forget, a deeply historical theme park. And third, there are so many quiet ties between this and Disney, which we will get into. I was able to attend Luna Luna a few days ago and see everything firsthand. And I really think it's worth knowing about. Because not only is its existence somewhat in flux, is it a museum, a gallery, an art exhibit, a warehouse filled with defunct attractions. But it's kind of ideal for people like us, for theme park people. We are familiar with spaces created for joy. We are acutely aware of how special things become in our collective memories once they are removed from public viewing. And we, possibly more than anyone else, can admire looking at pieces and parts of former attractions, especially when restaged in such a full-scale way. If it's worth going to or not is a more complex question, which we will get to. But Still, its exhibition isn't even the most notable detail here. It's how this even existed in the first place. It is a pretty wild story, actually. The type of story that as a journalist just gives you gives you an itch, gives you goosebumps, because It still blows my mind to this day. Things like this just don't happen, not on this scale at all. And it folds in so many layers of art, music, society, tourism, and worldwide politics together in and of itself that it's basically a pop culture croissant. So as the story goes, in 1987, Luna Luna opened in Hamburg, Germany, with rides created by some of the most famous artists in the world. It's basically what we all have in our roller coaster tycoon brains, our blue sky dreams for what is next at the theme parks we love. That little bit of your brain that envisions the same, but different. And these artists did it. They really did it. They made it happen. And it was all a dream of one man, an Austrian artist named André Heller, to glaze over the very long process it took to make Luna Luna even happen. The artist was inspired by carnivals and fairgrounds of his youth and hoped to, as he put it, build a bridge between the avant-garde and the quote-unquote so-called normal people. A lot of the history and facts I'm about to relay to you have been summarized from a couple New York Times pieces, Luna Luna's press materials, and my friend Todd Martins' piece for the L.A. Times. All of it will be linked in the show notes if you want to read further. But Luna Luna brought together some of the brightest visionaries in art for this amusement park project. Keith Haring designed a carousel, David Hockney a walkthrough attraction, Roy Lichtenstein did a glass labyrinth mirror maze, Basquiat lent his perspective to a functional Ferris wheel. You could go on a Basquiat Ferris wheel at the time. And Salvador Dali, yeah, Dali, made a reflective exhibit of his own. About 250,000 people experienced Luna Luna the summer it opened, and Heller hoped the exhibit would travel and flourish like the fairgrounds of his youth. But plans for a tour and to sell the park kind of fell apart, apparently partially due to political concerns. Again, a lot of this history is sourced from the New York Times, who reported a story about its origin entirely. But three years later, in 1990, he sold the entirety of Luna Luna for $6 million to the Stephen and Mary Birch Foundation, who hoped to put it on display once again. Concerns and complications led to that falling through as well, trapping the fair in a series of lawsuits across multiple countries as Luna Luna's remnants remained in shipping containers, sealed, sitting silently. For years, Heller thought about it, pined for it, wished he could obtain the remnants of this theme park. To quote another story from the New York Times, it took years of lawsuits, rabbit holes, cosmic coincidences, false starts, contract negotiations, strokes of luck, Zoom calls and logistical nightmares for Heller to be reunited with his grand creation and collaboration. Because it wasn't until 2019 that a creative director named Michael Goldberg discovered Luna Luna even existed, reached out to Heller and discovered Heller, too, was still trying to get it back. Michael, determined to get this done, brought the idea of Luna Luna's liberation to Dream Crew, the multifaceted company run by Drake and his team. Yes, Drake, the rapper Drake, Jimmy from Degrassi Drake. And they instantly got involved. They eventually were able to purchase it, but the journey forward still wasn't easy. It involves shipping containers with water damage and rattlesnakes nearby, but also shocking surprises like merchandise from the original park that is unbelievably now for sale in the gift shop. Everything was carefully, lovingly restored and put on display in a huge warehouse in Boyle Heights in Los Angeles, which when you see the photos seems cool, seems great, seems easy. But it's only because someone took the risk and a nine figure payday to invest in it. And that someone is Drake. Again, this doesn't this just doesn't happen. Drake and Dream Crew, Live Nation, event producers, everything had to fall in line. And it did. And it adds a certain lore, a certain Walt Disney-esque unfathomability that this even exists to the entire project. And that spirit, I think, sets this apart from anything else. There are a lot of historical ties and influences, too, particularly wrapping together World War II, the artists involved, their personal histories, and the crossover between art and commentary on our politics and our world as a whole. But the influence of Walt Disney and Disneyland cannot be ignored as part of Luna Luna's lore. Here was a man who dreamed the same dream and saw it through in such a similar yet very different way from the theme parks we know and love. Not to mention the ties these modern artists have to Disney. Take Roy Lichtenstein, whose early pop work featured Mickey Mouse. Keith Haring, who himself once dreamed of becoming a Disney cartoonist and whose 1980 artistic depiction of Mickey Mouse has been licensed for modern day collaborations with Levi's, Coach, Uniqlo and Swatch, to name a few. You've probably seen them before, possibly on people at the theme parks. And Salvador Dali, who collaborated with Walt and Disney animators on the Destino short, which also serves as inspiration both in name and in select design at the Grand Destino Tower at Walt Disney World's Coronado Springs Resort. And that's just to name a few. But with all that history, all of that background, the one question still remains. Is this worth going to? And we will answer that after this break. (laughs) ¶¶ Anyone who's uttered the words Genie Plus knows firsthand that vacations require time, money, planning, energy. And if you put all that effort into enjoying your trip already, why not extend the highlights of that getaway into your everyday with Framebridge? Put that vintage Epcot ticket up in your office and give it a little personality. Surprise your kid with their favorite character's autograph immortalized on the wall of their room. To get started, head to framebridge.com, because your precious travel memories shouldn't have to stay in the past. That's framebridge.com. Welcome back. I left Luna Luna inspired and wowed, but you should know what you're going to see before you see it. We arrived at the warehouse on a Saturday morning, and I found it to be not busy, but not empty. I know word is still getting out about Luna Luna, but I thought it was a nice crowd amount for being the middle of the weekend. The infrastructure was surprisingly good. It begins with check-in, you proceed down this long, dark hallway, and then you watch an intro video about the amusement park itself. From there, you proceed into the first half of the exhibit. A large, somewhat empty warehouse with Kenny Sharp's swing ride in the center. There's a whimsical carousel by Arik Brower and believe it or not, an homage to the Palace of the Winds, an exhibit that saw, yes, fart accompaniment to classical music. It is very real and there is video of it and it, it's something. It's something as well as David Hockney's Enchanted Forest and the highlight of this side, Keith Haring's carousel with 3D renderings of his famed illustrations as carousel vehicles. On the other side, there is a history of Luna Luna's participants in the park itself set within a more global timeline, which is really helpful. It helps you picture what led these artists to create what they did, as well as shipping containers on display that housed the exhibit, which really colors how much of an undertaking this was. There's also Basquiat's Ferris Wheel, a massive structure in black and white with phenomenal detail. A wedding chapel is featured at the original amusement park where one could marry anyone. Or anything. A novel concept here, but revolutionary back in the 80s, of course. Lichtenstein's attraction, which sadly kind of needs to be entered to be experienced, so it falls a little flat. And Salvador Dali's Dolly Dali Dome and its surrealist facade. Luna Luna maps are printed as newspapers, which was a cute touch. And it would be hard to imagine all of this if they didn't share loads of archival photos of patrons riding these rides back when Luna Luna was open, infusing life into the attractions without damaging the artwork. And they really staged it in such a smart way. There's music playing, including as part of certain attractions as they debuted. Basquiat's Ferris wheel has a Miles Davis song playing with it because it was the artist's original request. Of bananas And at intervals throughout your visit, the lights will shift and attractions will start moving. It's done in a way that I thought at first would be tempting. Here's a ride operating and you can't go on it. But it really brought a layer of kinetic movement that the exhibit really needed so you could envision what this place might have been like. I do think the scale of the attractions kind of drowns out the details of their origins. There are informational panels, and they're staged in a very cool aesthetic way. They're kind of hanging from the ceiling, and there's three of them in a row. But they have these small video panels and photo illustrations, and they're kind of cramped. I often had to wait until someone was done to really read them, just based on their size. And when the story is driving the importance of so much of this, that just felt like a bit of a miss. Conversely, there are these two massive photo walls between huge mural tarps of Keith Haring's. Again, blows my mind that this is even there and it looks so good. Massive, massive pieces of Haring's artwork. And those feel like a personal photo album. They're really, really great. And they lend a real depth and personal touch of authenticity to the project as a whole. Luna Luna is also, if you may not, if you don't hear this anywhere else, you hear it from me, a great place to low-key see famous people. We spotted Dave Grohl, my friend Heather's family spotted Herbie Hancock, and a friend of a friend saw Chris Pine. And I'm sure there are many, many others because the crowd was very cool, very artsy, very chic, dressed very well. And Personally, I was expecting more influencers, but it really didn't skew that way on my visit. It seemed more artists, musicians, people who are creative professionally among the crowd. Speaking of influencers, though, I've heard people wonder if this is a kind of TikTok trap. And I personally didn't see really anyone filming anything like that on my visit. I'm sure as this becomes more popular, which is inevitable, that's bound to happen. But really, we wouldn't have this without experiential art being so much a part of our culture and the ability to make a memory by way of snapping a photo. That's ingrained in our society now. This couldn't really exist without that. Well, it couldn't happen on the scale it needed to for Luna Luna to be what it is. And also, I think it provides a really interesting juxtaposition between modern culture and the art itself. Take Salvador Dali's geodesic mirror dome, which is shockingly similar to the types of immersive entertainment and experiential displays we are exposed to now. A so-called surrealist funhouse. It's not too dissimilar from modern Instagram-style museums. Perhaps narcissism was always popular, or just standing within a kaleidoscopic effect was always wowing, but it's a pretty intriguing display from that perspective. That said, Luna Luna as a whole could use a little more something. If you take your time, you can make a real hour, hour and a half out of it. But if you're just looking and glancing around, you might not find the juices worth the squeeze. It's an amusement park, but there's a strict lack of peanuts, popcorn and themed bathrooms. Though Luna Luna's original restrooms, which were their own extravagant piece of art, have a small display here of how do I put this? art themed to number two, if you catch my drift. (laughs) And you can indeed buy popcorn once you exit at the very 2024 price of $8 a cup. The music and displays as movement do a lot. And they also have Bob Baker marionettes making occasional appearances on the weekends, I believe, and stilt walkers and a mime dressed in the same garb that performers at the original park wore. But I found multiple references to Luna Luna having programming here and there. And I cannot seem to find it myself, and I did not see it on my visit beyond that. You really gotta you gotta build up the anticipation in your mind to make this worth it, I think. With artists of this caliber, they're rivaling some of the most modern art museums in the entire world. MoMA, Tate Modern, I'm about to pronounce a French word and I'm gonna do it wrong, Centre Pompidou, okay, maybe. I've been there many times, don't know how to say it. But they're rivaling these places and have original one-off Never anywhere else you can see pieces from Hockney, uh, Basquiat, Herring, Salvador Dali. I mean, while I was there, my husband turned to me at one point and said, this must be a billion dollar art collection. And he's right. It's basically a billion dollar theme park that you can't ride anything in. But not being able to ride anything shouldn't be the deal breaker. There's nowhere else in the world you can see all of these artists' creations in the wheelhouse of what you and I and so many of us love to do, which is go to theme parks. And that's kind of what it is. It's basically a theme park themed gallery exhibit by some of the best artists of all time. And I believe that's the best perspective to approach this with, because, yes, in a way, Yeah, it's a theme park you pay admission to where you can't ride anything. It is a little tempting. It'll make you want to go on a Ferris wheel after, even if you can't. But once you read the materials, see it all firsthand, dive in deeper, it paints a picture of how special and historic this really was. It's not just bonkers that this even happened in the first place, or unfathomable that it was lost to time and then found and restored, or wild that you can now see it all firsthand. All of it combines this story that caters to us theme park people specifically. And I was so appreciative to be able to know what this is and really revel in it because I had never, ever heard of this before. There was even a moment where I was just alone, completely alone, surrounded by Keith Haring artwork I had never seen before. And I was like, how did I get here? How is this real? So if you're deciding if Luna Luna is right for you and your family, this is the sticking point. If you're not really interested in the details, it'll take you 10 minutes to get through. You need to absorb it all. You need to read the writing, watch the videos, enjoy every small aspect of this to grasp the big picture. And that's why I think maybe this one isn't as much for kids as it is for adults. Now, it is kid friendly. I brought Pearl and she was totally fine kid-friendly in that respect, but for little ones, I could see the temptation being a little too much of standing next to a ride and not being able to go on. Tickets to Luna Luna cost between $30 and $47 per adult, kids ages 3 to 13 are $20, and moon passes, which are essentially some sort of, I'd call it VIP entry, range between $35 and $85. The moon pass is interesting because it allows you to experience the David Hockney and Salvador Dali pieces, which regular ticket holders cannot. They can only see the exterior of those. I had a moon pass and I found the Hockney piece to be not at all my favorite. I was intrigued by Dali's with the mirror panels and the photograph they take of you inside, which really I believe is a highlight before you exit, but I ultimately had to leave the line because Pearl was hungry. Listen, you can only do your best when you have a baby. I made it through the rest of the exhibit. I'm happy for that. But it's worth noting that the Moon Pass includes parking, which is $15. So if you're driving separately from a friend or the math works out, it kind of only ends up being about $20 more on top of that to upgrade to Moon. So keep that in mind when deciding if you are going, what you will get. You do get a little keepsake too, but the Dolly picture, I think, really is the highlight. Luna Luna is open 11 a.m. to 9.30 p.m. on most days. They are closed Monday and Tuesday. And if you are planning to go, my main recommendation is to be sure to eat before. There is a tiny little cart outside, but it's very overpriced and no food or drink is really allowed inside. If you have any other questions about Luna Luna, please reach out. But I hope if you do go, you have a wonderful time. And if you decide against it. I understand. I ultimately am so, so glad I was able to see this firsthand. It blew me away. There's nothing like this anywhere else. And if you approach it from that artistic knowledge perspective, I think you'll really get a lot out of it. Enjoy if you go.
1: My name is Josh. I live in Los Angeles, and I've been to Disneyland many, many, many times. But I grew up on the East Coast, and most of my vacations were to Walt Disney World as a child. And I'm getting the urge to go back. But here's my question. Is it possible to plan a spontaneous trip to Orlando anymore? Or does everything need to be planned six months in advance? Uh, Do I... What do I lose by not planning ahead? What do I gain by actually planning ahead? Part of me wants to just pick up and go next month, and I don't know if that's possible anymore. Uh, thank you. Love the podcast, and a, congratulate, uh, a belated congratulations on Pearl. I can't wait for her to be old enough to start her own podcast that you can call into at the end of every episode. Thanks a lot. Bye. <laughs>
0: Hi, Josh. Um, I cannot. You're, I, can you even imagine a world where I have a podcast that my mom calls into, and Pearl has a podcast that I call into? It's truly, uh, it's it's too many layers. Is that what an oroboros is? I just learned that word, which I should have learned from the second season of Loki. But it's like a snake eating its own tail. Yeah, that's that's what that would be. Just like a podcast circle that never ever ends. Um, I hope that if she has a podcast, she comes on mine because if she's too young to produce this herself, I'm going to be doing double duty. I'm going to be doing double duty. I'll stop talking about hypotheticals, though. I will answer your question. And oh, OK, here's the deal. Your call. I can't believe I'm saying this. Your call is going to get me to say good stuff about Genie Plus, which is hard to do. But this is where Genie Plus has the advantage over FastPass Plus, the system we used to have. If you called me a few years ago and you asked this question, I would say no. I would say that you are at a disadvantage to be planning a last minute trip. You should maybe try to find other dates or just go with the expectation that you can't do as much as you could have if you planned. However, because Genie Plus and virtual queues and lightning lanes, individual lightning lanes, because all of these products are really booked day of, you can plan a last minute trip to Disney World and be extremely successful, possibly as successful as if You had planned in advance. The real advantage for planning in advance these days is just that you know the product so well that you are not stressed when you're there. You have an idea of what you want to do, where you want to go and how you want to do it. Because if you decide all that day of, you're just kind of wasting time and wasting money. But since you are listening to Very Amusing and calling into the podcast, you are preparing in the way you need to. You probably have a good idea of what you want to do. Uh, We will be talking later this month about the changes to the parks and just going over Genie Plus procedures again. So you will be set up that way doing that type of research. But in terms of specifically planning, you're totally fine to plan a last minute trip these days as long as there are tickets available. If there are tickets available, you're good to go. I will say I planned my trip with Pearl In less than three weeks, which was, for me, when I used to go alone, and when I go alone, I plan very last minute. But going with Pearl, it was an entirely new way to visit Disney World, and I was still able to do it in less than a month. On our trip, I actually found that Dining because they changed the cancellation windows. They used to be 24 hours in advance. Now they are two hours in advance. And I found so much more flexibility and so many more options, even day of, even day before while I was there. So typically the thought was, oh, you got to do fast fast in advance. Oh, you got to book those dining reservations in advance. There will be a lot of things that you probably can't find right now. But if there's a place you want to go, definitely check once you're there, assuming you're going on this trip, once you're there, the day before, the day of, a few hours before, and you might be able to find something. A hot ticket restaurant you might struggle with, looking for a specific time, probably won't happen. But you definitely can go on this trip And and thrive on it. Again, my recommendation would be to have an idea of what you want to do. If you're not planning everything solidly in advance, make sure you understand the virtual queue process, Genie Plus, individual Lightning Lane, so that you know if and when you have to book those products. Uh, Depending on what hotel you choose, make sure you know how you're getting to the parks, um, what sort of uh, booking windows you have, if you can book individual Lightning Lanes at 7 a.m. If you can't, and uh, transportation, because it may have changed since your last trip getting from the airport to your resort hotel i i hope you i hope you book it i hope you give it a shot let me know how it goes have so much fun and don't worry because even if you can't do meticulously everything you want to do i think being able to do most of it which you will be able to if you uh plan advance in the sense that you're plotting out what you're doing i think you'll be successful and i think you'll have so much fun have a great time i hope you go okay bye
1: hey carly i just listened to your newest podcast i'm a fan I was just wondering if you could expand on when you said the candlelight processional makes you feel uncomfortable. I just thought it was a very – I'm not, like, mad and I don't have – I'm not holding a pitchfork. I just thought it was a very, like, strong statement. and Like, I really would just love to know your thoughts on why it makes you uncomfortable. Thanks very much. Appreciate it.
0: Oh, of course. I am happy to. And I appreciate you calling in instead of just – maybe harboring resentment or being perturbed that I said something like this. I appreciate you calling in because I think it is an important dialogue. I feel like I used to talk a lot about this online before and I haven't this year. So I'm happy to discuss it here. But essentially what it comes down to is that uh, obviously I am Jewish. as Everyone who listens to this knows and Candlelight Processional at Walt Disney World and at Disneyland It is, at its core, a religious show. I think if you were maybe raised in a certain sect of Christianity or you're familiar with Christianity, it may not completely strike you as that. And while we do acknowledge many cultures within the park, I do think there is more that can be done, but that is a separate discussion. It is strange to me, as someone who is an outsider, that there is the biblical retelling of the birth of Jesus Christ within a theme park. I joke about this at times, but it is true that I did not know this story. I did not know what Christmas actually was until I went to Candlelight Processional at Disneyland and Chris Hemsworth told it to me. I didn't know what a manger was. Uh, I didn't know about anything having to do with this. And the birth of Jesus Christ is not familiar to me because it's not my religion and it's not a lot of people's religion. Christianity and American culture are very closely intertwined around the holiday months everywhere in America, but also at theme parks. And there are certain things like Christmas trees and lights that don't feel as tied to a certain biblical belief. But there are others, like the story of baby Jesus, that inherently do. And Candlelight Processional is perhaps the most blatant example of that. I do want to say, it is a beautiful ceremony. I love seeing so many people come together to perform something that is so artistic and musical. You have singers, you have instrumentalists. It really is quite magical. And the overall themes, especially with the one that I saw John Stamos host, where he wrote his own speech, he wrote his own words for it, and his message about loving each other and carrying the feeling of joy and peace on earth with you when you left to treat others kindly. I thought, That was incredible. He really had a lot to say, especially tying back to his friend Bob Saget and really discussing about cherishing your loved ones in a way that really resonated with me, even though I am not of this religion. But to answer your question, It makes me so uncomfortable because it is squarely centered in religion. And Disneyland's and Disney World's are different. Disneyland's is in the middle of the park, which is historical to Disneyland. I get that. The way that they stage that, they've been staging it for many, many years. And it does honor Disneyland and its own history. But as somebody who doesn't celebrate this holiday at Disney World, it is strange to me and likely strange to other people who don't celebrate this that three times a night for about Five or six weeks every year, the biblical story of Christmas is recited and celebrated. And for someone who doesn't celebrate that, it is quite uncomfortable. I hope that helps to answer your question. Um, to give you context, I typically don't go to candlelight processional. I stopped going. Um, me attending this year was a special circumstance. Um, that was I went purely because John was hosting, and I was able to appreciate it in a new way for the artistry and just the the pomp of it all. It really is a beautiful show, but it undeniably does make me, as someone who doesn't celebrate this holiday, feel a bit a bit strange and a bit on the outside. I hope that I hope that explains everything. I am happy for everyone who attends this and loves it. I know it is a tradition for a lot of theme park fans and for people who do celebrate Christmas, it is a beautiful way to ring in the holiday season. It is just not my religion, so it is not something that I uh I will likely participate in again. I hope I hope that explains it and if you have any other questions, please feel free to call. I really appreciate you reaching out and thank you for listening. <laughs> that's our show thank you all so much for listening you can rate review and follow very amusing on apple podcasts and rate and follow us on spotify once again we love we love the little reviews we love the ratings we greatly appreciate it so thank you thank you thank you to everyone who has ever done that and if you haven't why not it takes two seconds it takes oh, it takes a shorter time than me even saying to do it so thank you in advance you can give us a call with what honestly whatever you want. Whatever theme park question you want or just life advice. I'm happy to give out life advice. Again, I'm not a technical life advice expert like I am about theme parks but i got plenty to say so I'm happy to help you out. You can do that at 747 Churros. A voice note to 747 Churros. I don't think I've said this before but calling 747 Churros is the best way to reach us but you can also send a voice note to 747 Churros uh, as a text message and you can send it as an attachment to 747churros at gmail.com. It's just an easier format when the audio is in the feed that we organize everything in, but still I'll take them anyway. And I have so many great ones I have to get back to So stay tuned because we have so many more. You can buy very amusing merchandise at very-amusing.com. And you can follow me at Carly Weisel on all the things and join the Fomaly at facebook.com slash groups slash Carly If you are listening to this the day or so that it drops, there is a group chat inside the Fomaly for the Disneyland Run Disney races, um, it's a new thing that Facebook kind of lets you do. That we set up in the group. Um, there are people who are running Run Disney who are in there chatting about meeting up, doing all that stuff. So hopefully, uh, if you want to want to be part of that community, join the foamily and then and then join hop in that group. This episode was edited elegantly by Jeff Fox. Thanks so much for listening. See you real soon.
1: Okay, you know I love this episode. Oh my god. Thank you for taking Dad and I to experience Pearl's first of everything at Disney World. It was so wonderful and I love being at Disney World and waking and walking in the room and seeing Pearl wake up in the morning and she gets up smiling. She's so cute. All right, back to work. Pearl was so mesmerized on these rides. So the first day we took around five rides and she kept the pace up great. She loved it. She was all in. She didn't cry once. She is definitely your child. She wouldn't nap. We put her in a dark room. She would not nap. She has FOMO. She wanted to do and do everything that we were doing. She's the cutest. All right. So my husband, hectic, we went through rain. We went through really hot weather, but we forged onward, and this was a great, great trip, and I thank you again, honey, and thank you for the best birthday present ever, Never did I think I would meet my favorite crush, John Stamos. We found out like the night before. I couldn't even sleep. You made this happen, and I will never forget this trip. And I'm sorry if I run over time, but John Stamos is actually 10 times even hotter in person and so, so, so sweet. So sweet and drop dead gorgeous. I have met many stars when you were living in New York and meet him at the plays afterwards. But meeting John Stamos was it for me. If John Stamos is listening, I apologize for being out of my mind. You were so gracious and so sweet with me, Carly and Pearl, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart. I love you, Carly. I love you, Pearl. I love you, John Stamos. Bye.